Lord, surely it has been good for our souls to have other believers, our brothers and sisters here, singing along with us, helping us to lift our hearts to you in praise. Lord, we thank you that it is truly a wonderful thing to be a part of a local church family and to have the support and the encouragement in our faith, Lord, to not lose sight of who you are, to have other people reminding us about you, encouraging us to seek you and follow you, being reminded of how you're at work in our world, seeking and saving the lost. Thank you, Lord, that we do all these things together as a church family. Lord, we also hear the word and we receive the word and we, <clears throat> we live out the word together. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would help me and help us during this time. <clears throat> we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm still struggling with my allergies, so hopefully that'll be over soon. If you want a good barometer of what a person treasures in his or her heart, what would you look for? I would suggest one of the ways to discover what a person treasures in their heart is to listen what they talk about. According to Jesus, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. In other words, the heart overflows, and then here you hear what comes out of the mouth. That's really a reflection of what's in the heart. Our words reveal our hearts. So if I ask the question, what would you likely expect to hear then from a person whose heart is enamored with and just overflowing with a sense of wonder and amazement and love at the greatness and goodness of God? And the answer, I hope you would say, would be to praise God. You would hear words of praise from their lips. This morning we are looking at Psalm 146. We've just read through it. And it is one of the concluding psalms that we find in the Psalter. Psalter is the book of Psalms. It's a Hebrew hymn book. And there are 150 of these songs, if you will. And we're looking now at 146, and if you 147, 148, 149, 150. All five of those are called, they're sort of lumped together because they share in similarities beginnings and endings are basically the same. They all say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And they are, in a sense, the conclusion of this final note, this, this Psalter, the Hebrew hymnal, concludes on this high note of a crescendo of joyful celebration of God. Because the book of Psalms has contained various songs that were written at times of sadness, times of sorrow, but they are also written at times of glorious celebration. All over the map, uh, the experiences in the Psalms have gone. Well, now this conclusion is, in the last five chapters of the book of Psalms, you read the word praise approximately 43 times. So you get the idea, it's a real strong conclusion, emphasis, emphasizing praising God. Now, as I say that, and as you know where we're going now with this psalm, I am aware that there might be some of us here today who have already said to themselves, oh, please, not a sermon on praising God. I'm not into it today. I just, I'm not in the mood to praise God and to make that much of it. May I remind you, of course, that there are times and seasons in life I think it's fairly easy to praise God. There are those times when there's a cool 
pleasant winds are blowing. Oh, praise God, what a nice day it is. But then there are those difficult days where rarely, many of us probably rarely praise God when we feel like we're going through the miserable, still, hot, muggy days of suffering and difficulty. But you know, the Bible insists that praising God is not contingent upon our circumstances. And I was so pleased that uh, one of our young people picked up in Sunday school class, someone asked the question, can you think of somebody who is rejoicing and praising God in the middle of trials and suffering? And bingo, the correct answer was given. Think of that example of Paul and Silas. They are two individuals who, in proclaiming the good news of Christ, had been arrested and not just merely confined into this Roman jail, but they had been beaten with rods. I must confess, I've never had that experience. I hope I never do. But imagine how you would be feeling and what is the emotional state, what is your physical state after having that kind of a treatment. Here is Paul and Silas. They didn't wait until their swelling of their contusions and their bruises subsided from their beatings that they received from the Roman guards. They didn't wait until they had been released from prison before they offered up a word of praise to God. It's fascinating in Acts chapter 16. Here they are, unable to move about, with their feet locked, and in the inner prison, not just a prison, but the inner prison would indicate what? Probably darkness, nastiness. I mean, I'm not going to describe the kind of things that must be on the floor, what it smells like. They don't have nice bathrooms. They're likely bleeding still. They're probably in severe pain. And we read in the Scriptures that in the middle of the night, they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Now that to me serves as a reminder that praise, the, the actual offering of praise to God, is not contingent upon having pleasant circumstances. To me that's the, <laughs> the, the ultimate example of that, it seems. But I wonder, can you relate to that experience? Do you know what it is to praise God while you're hurting? It's rather easy to praise God when you're enjoying blessings, isn't it? I know as I think about this text, I'm becoming more aware again, what comes out of my mouth? If there is no praise to God, then what's coming out of my heart is a reflection of what's in my heart. I have nothing and I'm not thinking of any reasons to praise God. And so my prayer as we study this psalm this morning is to again gain some valuable insights regarding the issues of our hearts that we might, by the grace of God and through the Spirit of God, enable us to get to the point where we fulfill our calling. You say, well, what is our calling? Well, for a true believer, we are priests who therefore bring our offerings of praise to God. So we read in Hebrews 13, through Jesus, we are continually to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Hebrews 13 continually offering up a sacrifice of praise to God. That's the privilege and the calling we have as Christians. You say, well, I don't feel like it. I hear you. I share that experience many times. But what I'm offering myself today to say is, Lord, teach me what it means to praise you continually and help me learn through this psalm. And so I, I need help with this. I'm sure you would agree that you need help as well. And let's trust God to do that. Let's learn now from the psalmist 
three insights into praising God we find in Psalm 146. The first is this. Praising God is not automatic. Praising God is not automatic. And I'll explain this later, but the word next is tuning, T-U-N-I-N-G. Tuning is necessary at times. I'll explain that in a minute. Psalm 146 begins with what? A very simple phrase. Praise the Lord. It begins with a command. It is a saying, all right, everyone, praise the Lord. You, meaning is inferred here, you, everyone, praise the Lord. It's a call to praise God. And the actual Hebrew word here is the word hallelujah. The word hallelujah comes from two Hebrew words. One is hallel, is the word for praise in Hebrew. It's an imperative call, praise. Okay, everybody, praise. That's what it means. And then the Yah comes from the contraction, the abbreviation, the shorter of the word Yahweh, from which we get the name Lord. And so it is a call to praise the Lord. That's what it's doing. So the psalmist issues an exhortation to the people of God to bring their praises to the true and living God. He's calling them to praise. Now this may have been read in the temple If they had a temple at the time, it's unclear when it was written. It could have been read in the uh, tabernacle, perhaps, before they even had the temple. It's not clear. But the psalmist was serving as a praise prompter. He's calling them to praise the Lord. Which is, of course, the pattern that someone would follow in the Old Covenant was someone was in charge and they were calling everyone else to praise the Lord. Now, I see this interesting principle now in the New Testament That corporate worship is where we do this, prompting each other to praise the Lord. When we gather on the Lord's Day, when we sing songs like we've just done, when we sing hymns, when we sing spiritual songs, we are urging each other to render to the Lord the praise that He is due and that is due to His great name. When we sing the word hallelujah, hallelujah, we are saying to each other, Hey, you my sister, you my brother, let's praise the Lord. We're calling each other to praise God. And I think this kind of praise prompting is exactly what God wants His people to be doing. And I say that because He's revealed that is His will for us in Ephesians chapter 5, where He says, keep on being filled with the Spirit of God. And how will I know if I'm filled with the Spirit of God? I'll be under the control of the Spirit of God. What does that look like? I'm not going to be jumping up and down in the aisles necessarily. I'm not going to be speaking in some strange babbling. I am going to be what? Speaking to one another in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things. You see how that's talking to each other? So when we sing, we sing on Sunday morning. Yes, we are singing to God, but we're also our singing has a horizontal effect upon each other's. Hey, let's, let's praise the Lord when we say hallelujah. Now, don't answer this question out loud, please. But I wonder, how many times have you come to church in a sour mood? I mean, you're just saying, I really, I don't know if I really want to be here. I, I'm thinking I'd like to have been stayed in bed a little longer. I've got a headache. Uh, I've had a lousy week. I'm not sure I really want to 
listen to some sermon about praising God and you're in just a bad mood. You would have preferred to sort of skip that, that corporate worship service. But isn't it interesting that many of those times in which you have made it here, even though the mood was not good initially, that God has met you while you're here and some of the ways in which God has, has drawn you and worked in your heart is a result in which your brothers and sisters have helped you draw you into the singing and have lifted you so that you would get your, your eyes back on Christ. And so I would say under point A that the word hallelujah that begins this psalm has this external encouragement or if you will the horizontal encouragement. It has to do with the people around us. Hey everyone, let's praise the Lord. That's why it's important that you be here on the Lord's day and not worship by yourself at home if you're able to providentially because we're doing that with each other. We're helping each other to praise the Lord. So much easier to sing with someone else, right? Now there's another component here in this call to praise. Look what the psalmist says in the next line of Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. He says, okay, that's a command. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. He's talking to himself. This is what I would call another component of this call to praise is the internal encouragement. Internal, that is, to myself. There are times in which we need to interrupt the patterns of thinking that we oftentimes slip into in which our thought life <clears throat> is rather negative, <clears throat> it's rather pessimistic. Perhaps we've sunken down into this thought pattern of rather cynical. Oh, brother, I have to go through listening to this again, you know, or whatever. There's a lot, a lot of negative thinking. And there's a call that needs to be made to ourselves to what? redirect our thoughts get your thoughts out of what you've always said about the situation or about yourself and get your thoughts back onto God and surely the children of Israel faced that battle again and again just like you and I faced that battle again and again when they're wandering in the wilderness right they wander in the wilderness and they're seeing God provide an incredible deliverance from Egypt an amazing miracle sees them through the Red Sea, they get through on not just muddy land, slippery rocks. No, it's dry, safe. OSHA would have approved of that particular transportation mode. Safe, everybody, nobody's slipping on the rock. And then as, they, as soon as they make it through, what happens? It closes up, drowns all of the Egyptian army. And so they have seen the powerful, mighty hand of God delivering them. It didn't take them very long till what? Oh, brother God, why'd you bring us out here? We got no water. We got nothing going on. We're not going to be able to survive. We should have left state in Egypt. What's going on here? So they slip into what? Their thoughts, their minds have become focused on what? Their problems have been magnified and God has sort of been pushed off to the sidelines and they've lost sight of how powerful he was and is. Don't we do that the same? You and I? doesn't take long because we will slip into trusting in ourselves and seeking our own kingdom and becoming frustrated that our kingdom and our plans are not working out the way we want and therefore we become what? Cynical, negative, nasty kind of thoughts we're entertaining in our minds, angry if you will, depressed maybe. And notice what the psalmist will say. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. He's talking to himself. 
Do you know it's okay to talk to yourself? Guess what? It's normative, and you couldn't stop it if you tried. I want to read you something I think is fascinating. I should have made a copy of it, put it in your notes, and maybe I will sometime. But this, it's coming from <clears throat> a devotional book by Paul Tripp, uh, which my wife and I are reading through this year. So he has an entry for every day of the year, and this is February the 4th from the book called New Morning Mercies. And listen to what he says. No one is more influential in your life than you are. I'm going to say that again. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Think about it. Think about it. It's a fact that you and I are in an endless conversation with ourselves. Most of us have learned that it's best not to move our lips because people will think we're crazy. They already think that. But we never stop talking to ourselves. In this manner, sorry, in this inner discussion, we're always talking about God, we're talking about life, we're talking about others and ourselves. And the things that we say to ourselves are very important because they are formative of the things that we desire and choose and say and do. Then he asked the question, what have you been saying to yourself? What have you been saying to you about yourself? What have you been saying to you about God? And what have you been saying to you about life, meaning, purpose, right and wrong, true and false, good and bad? He goes on to say that you are preaching to yourself of a God who is either distant, passive, and uncaring, or a God who is near, caring, and active. Now, if you take the scriptures, don't be surprised that you will find in the Psalms numerous examples of the psalmist talking to himself, and he records it. In the page of scripture. I've given you the text in your notes. Psalm 42, Psalm 43, Psalm 103, Psalm 104. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, what? Oh, my soul. <laughs> That's self-talk, right? Now, if you're a person who finds yourself struggling in this idea of praising God and you find yourself in a, in a dark place in your life, more often than you wish you were there, and you find it hard to get out of there and get to the place where you are praising God, and you find yourself just saying, oh, I've got a fog around me, things are dark, and it, and it just seems like it's a tough place to be. May I encourage you to obtain and purchase a book sometime. It'll help your soul and help your life tremendously. A book by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, it's called Spiritual Depression. Don't let the title bother you, but he's going to speak to those of you who lack joy. Let's put it that way. And listen to a quote he says when he's urging us to speak to ourselves to help overcome feelings of despair and discouragement that can oftentimes just sort of pull us off in a direction where we don't hardly ever praise God. He says this, quote, You have to speak to yourself. The scriptures teach us how to speak to ourselves. Remind yourself of certain things. Remind yourself of who you are and what you are. 
you must talk to yourself and say, I am not going to be dominated by you, you bad mood. This mood is not going to control me. And he says, so what he does at that point is he gets up, and he says, and start taking a walk. Get up and do something. Get up and get busy and talk to yourself and try to stop allowing your thoughts and your feelings to yank you in the direction that they want you to go in. There's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth. And that's why the psalmist says what? Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, he says to himself. Hope in God. He's talking to himself. You say, well, I don't know, this talking to yourself stuff sounds a little crazy. May I suggest you get your hymnal in front of you? Turn in your hymnal to page 35. I'm not going to ask you to sing. I just want you to look at some words. 35, the familiar hymn, Come Thou Fount. <clears throat> Very interesting. This is, a, this is really a, a song that is a prayer to God. He's saying, Lord, I want you to come like a fountain. You are the fountain of every blessing. And then he says this. He's asking God to help stir up praise within his own heart. He says this. This is Robert Robinson. Come, you fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing your praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. I've been meditating on that phrase, tune my heart to sing your praise. Do you know that recently we noticed in the church that uh, we no longer had the gentleman coming in to tune our pianos? You probably didn't know that. Nobody probably noticed that. But it was true. It was like several years, maybe, a year and a half. And so the gentleman came recently who tunes our pianos, and he comes, he sits down, <clears throat> he has a special little wrench and a tuning fork, and he, he bangs the tuning fork. It comes up with a certain frequency, a certain tone that's exactly right on. Exactly that, that note is just perfectly pitched. And from that, he then begins to go up and down the scale and make sure that the next note is all in the right, goes octaves. And then he, he, just, he just tweaks it a little bit, tightens one up, loosens another up. And he says, if you don't keep your pianos in tune, there will come a time where even if you do bring them back into tune, they go right back into being out of tune fairly quickly. You've lost it. Now, now hear my point here. We, like stringed instruments, have hearts that often get out of tune with God. Isn't that true? Times in which we're just, we're really sour notes. Like, ugh, that sounds awful. And so our hearts get off pitch so easily. Our desires will shift, and it happens very subtly. We start longing for that which is at odds with God's purpose, with God's agenda. And so the question comes, what will help us tune our hearts to sing his praise? Certainly prayer is one, but it's hard to pray when your heart is out of tune, right? So here's what I'd like to suggest. Meditate on Christ. Get your mind off yourself, off your problems. Get your mind onto Christ. Think about Jesus. Think about and meditate on the promises that Jesus has made. Reflect on the gospel. Talk to yourself by reading aloud the scriptures. That is, I would suggest, if you're in a place, you say, well, oh, I just feel like I am way out of tune today. 
One of the ways to get that wrench out and tune your back is to what? Read Psalm 103 out loud enough times till finally that tuning is finally getting done and your heart is going to open up to God and say, okay, Lord, thank you. I do realize how wonderful you are. You'd be amazed how that will help you. Someone's saying, I wish our sermons were a little more practical. Folks, I'm bringing it right down to the everyday, okay? You say, if I read Scripture aloud, people think I'm crazy. Then go find somewhere where you can read it out loud, and they won't think you're crazy. Read it out loud. A-loud is probably the better way to say it. I still hear my mother talking in my head. Out loud is aloud, aloud. Okay, point number two. <clears throat> Verses 3 and 4 help us understand that praise, we praise God because He is more reliable than the greatest person on earth. God is more reliable. Look what He says in verses 3 and 4. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs, He returns to the earth, and that very day His thoughts perish. God is worthy to be praised because there's no one who equals Him. He is immutable. That means God doesn't change. He is eternal. His promises that he makes to us and to his people, they do not expire before you expire. Think about it. I wonder why the psalmist turns his thought to this warning about trusting in princes. But I wonder if it's because he's thinking at the time when God's people were being warned by the prophets before the captivity, they kept saying, listen, the prophets would say, stop putting your trust in all these governmental leaders, thinking that you make some treaty with this nation, you're going to be safe from that nation, and so you're going to rely on this particular political alliance, and you're going to give them money, and you're going to enter some kind of trade with them. And He says, forget all that. You need to trust in God. So if you look at what Jeremiah wrote, and he's trying to encourage the people of God not to trust in other national leaders or other nations or other schemes to try to protect themselves uh, with all these political alliances and treaties. Jeremiah 17, we read these words, fascinating, verses 5 to 8. He says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, who makes flesh his strength. He is relying on other people to give him the strength he needs to do whatever he's got to do. Whose heart turns away from the Lord, for he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes and will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. He says, you're going to live like in a desert. You're going to live life apart from God, relying on other people. He says, you're going to be miserable and you're not going to do very well. But a man, blessed is the man, however, who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. You see what he's saying? Even though you go through hard times, difficulties, times in which you are really pushed to the max, there's still going to be the thriving because your trust is in God. It's been said many a time, it's not original to me, the best of men are men at best. The most resourceful, the most inventive, the most wealthy, the most well-connected person in this world is a finite being who is limited in strength, limited in understanding, and limited in abilities. The psalmist, 
here in this text, in verse 3, is doing a little wordplay. You don't get it in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's pretty obvious. He says the word mortal man in verse 3, or son of man, is the Hebrew word Adam, A-D-A-M, Adam, Adam. The word in verse 4 for earth, translated earth, is Adamah, A-D-A-M-A-H. They sound similar. And so I think what he's doing is he's echoing back to Genesis 3, reminding us of the fact that we're not to trust in mere men, people who are created by God, because, as one writer says, they are nothing more than human beings, no different from ourselves, because they are weak men, unable to give help. They are dying men because they are subject to dissolution. They return to the earth because their thoughts are transitory as their bodies. You know, the point here is this. People will fail you. People falter. People break their promises. People lose their power. They pass from the scene. Those who trust in the powerful people of that culture, you're going to end up, he says, I'm warning you, you're going to be disillusioned and you're going to be people who are deserted at the end. But God is greater than every person. He deserves to be praised. He can be completely trusted. And there is nothing like, God is nothing like the princes of the earth because he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the one who's greater than all of them added up together. As I've meditated on this idea of the, of the king and the prince and all that stuff, I'm wondering if the psalmist has been reminding us of our own tendency that we have to live as if we think we can be a prince. We can be the one who's sort of ruling our own little kingdom, our own little realm that we like things to go our way. Isn't it true too often we rely on our own resources, we rely on our own wisdom, our own strength. We think that we are little mini kings over our little realm and therefore when things go well we delight in the fact that our little things are all in place and our plans are all put together and everything's wonderful because I like it that way. I'm in charge and so I am happy when things go my way. But what happens when it don't? Our plans are hijacked. We become angry and our will is not being done. We panic because we fear we're losing control. That's why some of us are so anxious because we like to have control, things to go a certain way. Every day we are tempted to be our own kings. We want to be rulers of our own little worlds. And the psalmist says, listen here, don't you presume that you have control over your world. You don't. And don't presume that somebody else who is high and mighty that you look up to and you think they're going to solve all your problems, they're not going to be able to do it either because they're not totally in control. You should learn to praise God and see Him and appreciate Him as the one who is in control. He is sovereign and king over all. He's worthy to be praised. He's unchanging and eternally good. Our third point, and I'm going to draw this to a sooner conclusion than I could have. This is a whole nother sermon here you could unpack here. But let's just look at point number three, verses five to ten. Um, the psalmist talks about how blessed is he whose help is the Lord, is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who has made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith or truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, gives food for the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. 
He opens the eyes of the blind. He raises up those who are bowed down. He loves the righteous. He protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. And he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Point number three. Praise God because He alone is powerful, reliable, and compassionate. Powerful, reliable, and compassionate. It's very obvious in the text there. Psalmist does what? He backs up as the more reasons why we praise God. It has nothing to do with how you feel any given day. It has to do with who God is and the fact that what? God is so powerful because He made heaven and earth. He made the sea and all that's in it. <clears throat> what kind of power <clears throat> does it take to make this earth and to sustain the lives of over 7 billion people who live upon it? Who can fathom the strength that it took to create billions and billions of stars that make up this expanding universe? Since God has unlimited power to create, He's also able to sustain everyone He's created. God's power and reign will continue forever. So there's not one thing on this earth that's outside of God's permission. Did you hear what I said? It's not one single thing that's happening in this world that's outside of God's permission. I'm not saying that God is causing all things to happen as if He is the directive force behind it. I am saying ultimately He is the one who's permitted it. If you have a problem with that, I would encourage you to read again the, the, every scripture verse that deals with the sovereignty of God. He's in control of everything. If He's not in control of everything, He's in control of nothing then, basically. All right, I've got to move on. Um, second point that He is just, He's reliable. How many times do we see people who are not very reliable? I'm old enough. I know I'm very old now. I'm old enough to remember Richard Nixon. I lived through the Watergate era. How many of you have very little knowledge about Watergate? I bet there's some of you here like, what in the world are you talking about? Um, well, most of you, oh, it's not, not to me, raise your hand. So some of you younger folks, you don't know what will happen. But anyway, uh, it's, almost, it's coming on the 40th anniversary of the Watergate burglary. And President Nixon attempted to cover up various efforts that he went to to circumvent the laws of the United States. He is one of a long list of leaders, world leaders, who have not kept their word and who have sought to cover up the truth. But I just want you to realize in this text, verse 6, it is such a healthy, refreshing reminder that God is 100% reliable. God keeps faith forever. Wow. That is, people are so disillusioned with politics and politicians specifically. Guess what? Stop putting your hope and faith and trust in politicians. Put them in God. Trust, trust in God. Learn to praise Him for who He is. He, he keeps faith forever. Never breaks His covenants. Titus says, verse 1, God cannot lie. He cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy chapter 2. God does not speak from both sides of his mouth. He doesn't say one thing to this group, and then he says another thing to another audience over here. He doesn't do that. I know some politicians that do. <clears throat> they can't do it as much as they used to because of the Internet. They catch them on it. But Jesus, when Jesus tells us something, you can bank on it. And when Jesus warns us of hell... 
You need not doubt that. That is truth. And when Jesus speaks about heaven, you need not doubt that. That is truth. It's accurate. His warnings are accurate. His blessings and promises are accurate and true. And the more you read the scriptures, the more you look at who God is and what he's revealed about himself in the word of God, you know that God's word is reliable and you know that it's written, it is written for us that we might know that we have eternal life. And the reason we know we have eternal life is because we can know what God has done to, prov to provide to us the gift of eternal life in what he has done for us, not in what we have to do for him. The confidence that we have in having eternal life has to do with the fact that God has provided to us what we all desperately need, and that is a perfect uh, substitute upon who kept all of the law of God and did it so that he is righteous and has a righteousness that is his own. And then he died on the cross for the things that you and I have committed as cosmic treason and breaking God's laws. We, he paid for all that debt, and now when he raised from the dead, God declared it has been paid in full. It completed everything it needed to do. It is finished. And here the word of God says that God has made adequate provision for your justification through Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. And the more you read and understand what Christ has done, the more you place your faith in Christ, the more you will have what? The Spirit will bear witness with, with your spirit that you are really a child of God if that's what you're trusting in, if that's what you're hoping in, and not yourself. God's character and God's commitments do not waver. Someday, thank God, look at the verse there, and I think it's verse, um, <clears throat> verse 9. He says, someday God will thwart the way of the wicked. You see, there's a lot of injustice in our world. Yes, there is. There will be a day of accounting. God will hold these people accountable. Vengeance is mine, the scriptures say. And God will not change his assessment of what is evil. There are only two paths in life. There's a wide path that leads to destruction, and there's a narrow path that leads to life. That's it. You can rely on what Scripture says. You say, well, it seems so unpopular in our world. Scripture is not written what to make them popular. Scriptures are written so we might know the truth, so that we might know God's mind. Last thing I want to say here on this third point about being compassionate is I've thought and meditated on many of the, the statements that the psalmist says, and I've thought to myself, I think he's probably selected examples of people who have the most difficult life situations. The people who perhaps are having the most challenging time praising God. These are people who operate and are living at a daily life that is far more difficult than what you're going to face tomorrow or the rest of this week. Look at that. It talks about people what? Blind. Oppressed. People don't have any food to eat. They're hungry. They're in prison, probably arrested and improperly or unjustly. They are people who are bowed down, which would mean what? They're oppressed and they're being not able to look up, perhaps because they're in such pain and agony. Uh, people who are uh, widows, they don't have anything. They're no one that's going to take care of them. He goes on and on, picking the, selecting the people who are the worst situations of difficulty and desperation in their day-to-day -day life. And what does he say to them? He speaks specifically to them about God and how God is compassionate toward them, how God is caring toward them, how God is going to come and help them along the way and giving them hope and reason to praise God. 
example after example of God being moved in compassion, helping the weak, helping the oppressed, helping the desperate. It is God who attends to the most vulnerable. He raises up the downtrodden. He sets captives free. You say, why does he do all that? Because he's a God of love, God who cares. God is concerned about every one of his creatures who bear his image. And God has proven time and time again that he is the healer of those who have no one to defend their rights. It is God who is a lover of the lost, a lover of those who are losers, a lover of those who are facing impossibilities. And so I would say to you, like the, like the psalmist, place your faith in God, be reminded of who God is, and pray that God by His Spirit will cause to well up in you, now that your heart is tuning, and tuning in the right direction, to well up within you words that will praise our wonderful, gracious God in praise. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we've been challenged by these reminders, we thank you that the gospel reminds us that those of us who have hearts that easily get out of tune, we thank you that we have such a gracious Savior who comes to us <clears throat> through his Spirit in the Word and he tunes our hearts, tries to get us back on key, preparing us for eternity because that's what we're going to do in heaven is praise you endlessly. So, Lord, I pray that you would do that for every heart that's here. Some of us, Lord, are here today, and we've never had our heart tuned to begin with, and we've never really sung your praise because we've been too busy trying to have people praise us and think good of us and try to become a better person before you to somehow find acceptance before you. Lord, I pray that you would bring each person like that to repentance and to humble them to see their desperate need for a Savior that will never, ever be able to do enough to pay the debt they owe you because of their sin. Lord, help them to claim Christ, to yield to Christ, to trust Christ, and to come on his terms and yield to him, confessing him as Lord, trusting him and what he's done for them on the cross and in his resurrection. Impart to them, we pray, new life. And Lord, for those of us whose hearts have become <clears throat> sort of uh, out of tune, we pray, Lord, that you would help us throughout this week and day by day to be in the word and to have the word of God pointing us to you and causing to well up from within us words of praise that indicate that our hearts truly are filled with awe and wonder and love for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.